well this morning, um, and as Pastor Jeff said last Sunday, he explained that God told of this coming flood and the promises of salvation for Noah and his family, and this week's text is the actual flood. I'm going to read the chapter, and then I want to explain kind of three different parts, and then have one kind of main thing. So let me read these verses, Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature. They went in the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there uh, was the breath of life. And those that entered... Male and female of all flesh went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died and that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm in the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's pray. O gracious Father, deal generously with us by opening our eyes that we may behold the wonders of your word. And this text is wonderful. We often lack the faith to believe what you have written. And so, God, please, by your Holy Spirit, may our hearts and minds be consumed with the longing for your rules at all time, that we might uh, have faith to believe what you've written. May we seek and find all by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was uh, reading, um, 
I don't think there's much in this chapter that's uh, complex or obscure. It's pretty straightforward. There's just a few things that might trip you up, and so I want to hit those things right away. Uh, The first is in verse 1, when God tells Noah to enter the ark, he says in the second half of of, of verse 1, For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. That uh, may trip you up because you know that the doctrine of sin holds that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And we know that salvation, and Noah getting on the ark here is a type of salvation. Salvation is by God's grace alone. It's not by our works. It's not by our righteousness. All right? And so how could God then call Noah righteous if, if he's a son of Adam? And how could God save Noah uh, and, and say that it's because you're righteous? And so I, I want to talk about that. Solution isn't that difficult. I'm sure you could come up with it yourself. Now, when God says that Noah is righteous, that doesn't necessarily mean that Noah is sinless. We'll see that at the end of the flood narrative. Noah is a sinner. He was born in sin just like you and me, but Noah had faith in God's promise. We read that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. You don't have to turn there. We read there that Noah became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. And so Noah is just like you and I. Noah is saved by grace through faith in the promise of a coming Savior. Noah was before Christ. We come after Christ, but our faith is the same. Noah had future-looking faith in the promise of one who would save. We have uh, backwards-looking faith, in a sense, looking back to the cross. And so Noah was saved just like us. And just like us, when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are credited the righteousness of God, we, we get accounted as perfectly right with God, and then that righteousness begins to work in us an actual living of righteousness. When one becomes a Christian, we begin to hate our sin. We don't like it. We don't want it. We don't want to live like it anymore, and we want to grow to actually become uh, righteous. Now, the righteousness that we're talking about here in verse 1 is the actual kind of living righteous. Noah, in comparison with those in his generation, actually was a righteous guy. He was holy. He loved God. He loved others. He wanted to obey God. When he sinned, he repented of it. When he became aware of his sin, he fought it. He wanted to live righteous and holy before his God. It means that he feared God. We read in verse 5 that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. That's an unpacking of the righteousness in Verse 1. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, a question is asked. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? This is talking about future end-time salvation. God dwells on a mountain, a holy mountain. And the question then is, who can ascend it? Why is the psalmist asking that? Because he knows us. He knows what we're like. Who can ascend to God? And the answer is, 
He who has clean hearts and a pure heart, or clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully. Now, the psalmist's answer there doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means that those of us who have been saved by God's grace walk by that same grace in increasing godliness and purity. And that's what Noah was like here. Noah is held out in the Bible as an example of godly living in an age that was ungodly. Noah is held out as an example like the apostles in the beginning of Acts of those who feared God and would rather obey him than what men thought. Noah is an example of a man who knew God's word of a promise of a coming Savior and had allegiance to God before and above all others. Noah is an example of a man who took God at his word and would do anything, even something crazy like spending a hundred years building a big boat. <laughs> and so Noah is an example of godliness for us. That, that, that's what's going on here. Noah is serving us as an example of Christian. He he should be an encouragement to us. This kind of life is actually possible. Again, this isn't perfection. This isn't never sinning. But this is, as you know, letting your walk match, grow to match your talk, as we sometimes say. This is actually wanting to live righteous before God. Now let me ask you something. What is Noah's reward for his righteousness? What does Noah get? A hundred years on a cramped boat with a bunch of animals. (laughs) Noah's a righteous man. He gets shut in a big, huge boat filled with animals and all their filth for more than a year. In the next chapter, we'll see that. It took that long for the flood waters to abate. I, I want to point this out because we sometimes think that living righteously uh, comes with earthly, temporal, material rewards. We want health and we want wealth and we want prosperity for our righteousness. And Noah suffered. Noah suffered. What did Noah get for his righteousness? One way we could answer this is the one thing Noah got was God. That's it. That's all he got. He got God. He got what nobody else in all the world got. He got a saving covenant fellowship communion with God. Noah, that that, that was enough for Noah. Put it that way. That was enough for Noah. So this is one thing that you and I can consider as believers. We want to live righteously. We we want to fight our sin. And what is our reward? What do you get for following faithfully before your God? What do you get? You get God. That's it. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Why do you want to ascend the hill of the Lord? Because it's the Lord up there. That's it. That's all we want. We just want God as believers. That's it. He is our reward. He is the one we want above all others. 
We don't need health. We don't need wealth. We don't need more of this or more of that. We want God. That's it. That's all that Noah gets. And the second question that might trip you up is in verse 2. It says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals and only a pair of animals that are not clean. The seven there is a bit confusing. In the Hebrew it says, take with you seven sevens. That either means actually seven pairs or 14 animals. um, Or it means six and one more, seven total. So three pairs and one extra. But the point is there's more of the clean animals and less of the unclean. What's going on here? Well, the clean animals are those clean both for food and for sacrifice and worship. Right? The clean animals are those that can be eaten in the Old Testament law and those that can be used rightly for worship. And so God wanted here to provide food and worship, and then after the flood abated for the clean animals to be able to reproduce more quickly. We'll see in 8.20 next week, after the flood, or maybe that's in two weeks, after the uh, flood, Noah offered some of every clean animal and every clean bird. Now, I wanted to put this out here just because I thought you probably have a question about it. I had a question about it and, and had to look it up. Um, but one of the lessons here is, Worship is our main priority, right? God is providing and noting one main thing in the flood, and that is the right worship of God. We should note here that God desires worship in a certain way. He, he defines it. This way and not that way. This animal and not that animal. It's not left up to the worshiper to decide. It's up to God, and God provided. And so after the flood... After the long time on the boat with all the animals, the first thing Noah does is worship. And here God is providing for that. Now think about what Noah went through on that boat. Think about it. Think about all of the friends, all of the family drowned. I, I, I would assume they heard their pleas for help, their cries as the floodwaters rose. And there's Noah and his family alone saved from all mankind. And what's the first thing that one does when they're saved by God's grace? They worship. They offer praise to him who would do that. So I just wanted to point out here the high priority of worship. We're made for this, aren't we? Why did God make you and me? Why did God form us? Why has God redeemed us? For his glory. We can honor and praise him above and beyond all others. So let's never allow anything to hinder our gathering with God's people to worship him. Let's worship God. Let's not put anything before this main priority. Let's not let anything intrude on our evenings with our families, worshiping God together. Let's worship God. One more thing by way of explanation. Noah, we're told, 
if you go back to chapter 5, verse 32, was 500 years old before God revealed that he was going to flood and told Noah to build the ark. And then in 7, 6, we read that Noah was 600 years old when the flood began. So there was 100 years between when Noah was told of God's coming judgment and to build an ark and when the flood came. Now, I wanted to point that out um, because one of the things, and I'll cover this in the back half of the sermon, one of the things that's happening in this text is that believers struggle to believe that this is actually real, that there was actually a flood that covered all the earth and so on. And one of the questions is, how could he ever build an ark? Well, he had 100 years. He, he had a lot of time. But I, one of the things I wanted to just apply here um, as by way of application to us is living as a Christian isn't kind of a short-term sprint thing. That is, God didn't tell Noah there was a flood and then a month later Noah had to just wear himself out for a month getting this ready. He had a hundred years of obedience here. (laughs) A hundred years of cutting and sawing. A hundred years of fitting. A hundred years of all of the ridicules and mocks. A hundred years of convincing his wife that he hadn't lost it. A hundred years of convincing his sons to get up again and work on the ark again. A hundred years of long, faithful, plotting obedience. So I just want to encourage you, Christian, the Christian life is just plodding along. Okay? The Christian life is just one little foot in front of the other. It's just obedience in one direction over a long period of time. So many times when somebody becomes a Christian, they want to grow up real fast right now. I, I just want to... I want to be godly. I want to know this. I want to know all this stuff in the Bible. How do you know all this stuff in the Bible? How do you... Just, just, just read the Bible faithfully day after day, little chunk after little chunk, and in 10 years, you'll know the Bible pretty well. But we're so impatient in our sanctification, aren't we? We demand God give us what somebody who has been walking with the Lord for 50 years, and you've only done it for five. It is also a reminder of how fickle we can be. And Noah serves as an example of just faithfulness over the long haul. Remember the parable of the soils Jesus told us? How some seem to come to faith and they spring up real eagerly and they do a whole bunch of things and then they just fall away just as quickly. And then you have the fruit that grows and it's nurtured and it gets trimmed and pruned and in the long haul it bears fruit. Many times over what the one who grew up quickly. So Noah serves as a great example of believers of faith over the long haul. Parents have to have this with their kids, don't they? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Right? And so be exhorted, brothers and sisters. Have faith. So many of us are so quick to give up on our marriages. Let's have faith for the long haul. Let's have faith for our friendships. To endure by faith in them. Let's have faith for the church. For the sins and failures of others in the church. Let's have faith to stick with it. Our God is 
not interested in how quick you do something, but in how long you endure in this work. All right, so those are three things that I thought might be good questions. Let's go to the main difficulty. What if you can go back to Genesis chapter 3 was the main temptation uh, that Satan tempted Eve and then Adam with? You remember the first question? Did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really flood the entire earth? Surely it was just like a local flood. Did God really say to bring every animal? Did this really, surely this is just some kind of a myth or some kind of a embellishment to prove a point? I mean, in light of all of the geological findings, in light of how committed scientists are evolution, did God really This is the main thing that we're faced with when we come to Genesis 7. And and the main, I don't know, assault, the main challenge to our believing what is plainly readable in this chapter isn't from without the church, it's from within the church. There's so many evangelical, big-name Christians and organizations who are trying to convince Christians that this is not what it appears. It wasn't a worldwide FUD. Now, I do believe every word of Genesis 7 as it's written. I believe with all my heart. There is temptation to doubt it. There's a temptation to keep my mouth shut when Christianity and the Bible is mocked for things like Genesis 7. There's temptation if you're gathering with family members who are antagonistic to Christianity and they make fun of this when they've had one too many. Right? And you don't want to speak up and look like an uh, ignoramus for believing things like this or at work or wherever. And I assume that if you're in a church like this, you actually believe that what you read here in Genesis 7 is what happened. God flooded the entire world, everything, and everything died but ate in all of the animals on the ark. That you actually believe this. But it's really easy to believe it while we're in here, and it's really easy to believe it in here. It's tempting when you're at work or with family members um, who want to challenge this to not. Listen to something that an evangelical Christian group that would be considered conservative, whose members are, come from churches and denominations that are conservative, listen to what they say about this. And then ask yourself as you listen to it, ask yourself if it sounds reasonable. That you could buy into something. Listen to this. The story, right? That's how it starts. You gotta listen to words. The story of Noah, the ark, and the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 is one of the most famous and controversial passages in all the Bible. Your, your antenna should already be up. The story 
centered around a global cataclysm and a floating wooden zoo, has captured the imagination of people for millennia. Until modern times, most Christians assume the story referred to an actual worldwide event that happened in a relatively recent past. And this interpretation of the flood continues to be a central feature of young earth creationists. You could substitute young earth creationists for fundamentalists there. That's what they really mean. However, here we go. However, the discoveries of modern science as well as an explosion of new knowledge about the ancient world of the Bible, have decisively, (laughs) decisively challenged whether this interpretation is the best reading of the text. This includes the work of many Christian scholars and scientists who were and continue to be guided by a belief that all truth is God's truth, that Scripture is inspired, and that the testimony of God's creation should not be ignored. The scientific and historic evidence is now clear. There has never been a global flood that uncovered the entire earth, nor do all modern animals and humans descend from the passengers of a single vessel. This isn't from a liberal Christian. This is from conservative Christian think tank. That big names that you read their books uh, are on the name of this website. (laughs) Doesn't that sound reasonable, though? Doesn't it? If you were alone by yourself and read this as a post on Facebook, wouldn't you go, hmm, that could be. I I could be tempted by this. I think we can be. Right? These folks then go on to say that there's three options in light of science. You can either abandon a Christ and just go to science, which they don't recommend, Or you could deny science and maintain your fundamentalist, young earth creationist interpretation, which is a wrong one. Or you can reevaluate your interpretation in light of the evidence of science. (laughs) Then they go on to comfort you that it was common in the ancient world to tell true stories in highly figurative ways. This is just a figurative embellishment of a local event. This is, these are Christians. Doesn't that sound plausible? I mean, who wants to be called a fundamentalist? You see how subtly and easily we can be persuaded to disbelieve plain language. When I read this, isn't the language very plain? Is it figurative at all? It doesn't even begin like one day in a galaxy far away. It just reads like straightforward historical narrative, right? It's just plain. Did you hear any figurative anything? Didn't it sound like somebody just recounting what happened? So what do we do with this temptation? See, the question for us as believers is do we believe God's word or don't we? That's it. That's it. Do you believe God's word or don't you? See, the problem is you and I are not given the authority to pick and choose. We can't. We can't. Now, of course, 
there are supposed hurdles to believing the straightforward narrative of Genesis 7. One has to do with the ark. Pastor Jeff last week described the dimensions of the ark. It's huge. In the words of our presidents, it's bigly. It's massive. How could somebody who's closer to the caveman than us build something so big, so massive? And any of you, we have some engineers in here, you would know how difficult this would be undertaking. But see, that's because you and I, growing up in government schools, have been taught that ancient man grunted, drew stick figures on cave walls, but had uh, brains much smaller than ours. But you and I know that's wrong, right? Because we read Genesis 4. Ancient man immediately made musical instruments and built cities. And they weren't hunter-gatherers. They were shepherd-farmers. They made instruments for work and for war. Or, as I was studying for this, I listened to a sermon from one pastor who used the example of the Great Pyramid in Giza, built 2,000 years before Christ. Its footprint is over 13 acres, constructed of stone blocks, 2 million stone blocks, raising from 2 to 50 tons. I don't know why you have a problem with Noah building a boat. He had 100 years to do it. God gave him specific instructions. His sons helped him work. He maybe, probably hired other people. But we find it difficult because we've drunk the Kool-Aid of our revolutionary worldview that held that ancient men walked hunch over, grunted, dragged women round by the hair while drawing on cave walls. It's just not true. What about the animals? How does one guy get all those animals, not just to one place, but into one boat? But if you believe the Bible, you don't have a problem with this, right? He already did it once in Genesis chapter 2. Remember? God brought every animal before Adam, and Adam named him. See, if you don't believe Genesis 7, now you can't believe Genesis 2, which is fundamental to the creation order. You really have undermined everything. Is it really that hard for God to get those animals there? Now, one of the difficulties is he says that he brought some of every kind. Uh, Kind here doesn't mean like species. Kind here meant higher up the uh, what's that word I'm looking for? The scientific pyramid species. What? Genome? Yeah, okay, whatever. You know what I mean. Right. Right. He probably bought a wolf, and now you have all the dog kind of animals from that. This is not hard, unless you're predisposed already against the Bible. See, the problem isn't All of these challenges, the problem is we don't love God's word. The the problem that people have with it is because it's found in God's word. You know, the same scientists who question whether God could uh, destroy the world with a global flood hold that Mars was once globally flooded. (laughs) If you read science, they'll more quickly say that life began on earth maybe with aliens planting celled organisms here, but they won't believe this. Why? Because it's found in God's word. We hate God's word. What about water? 
a worldwide flood? Come on. This is where the compromise of the church has mostly taken hold. The church, rather than, the, I, think, I, I don't think I'm overstating here, the majority of the church compromised, not in saying there wasn't a flood, but that it wasn't worldwide, it was just localized. They take the word earth in here and say, this isn't talking about the earth, this is just talking about a little chunk of the earth. But of all of the lies, I think that one is the most stupid. And I use stupid there, not to offend moms and their kids. It really is. If God flooded, not the whole earth, but a, just a tiny part of it, why an ark? Noah had 100 years. He could just walk to a different location in 100 years, right? right. Why gather all the animals? Birds. Birds could just fly maybe to another location. But just look at the language in here. Moses goes out of his way, the author of this Look, Moses goes out of the way communicating as clear and strong language as possible to the extent of the world, flood was worldwide. Upon the earth, earth, all the fountains of the earth, the flood against the sky, the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. All the mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. All flesh on the earth perished. Upon the earth, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. So our problem isn't that the text is obscure. Our problem isn't that the language is tricky. Our problem is that we're tempted, like Eve, to unbelief and saying, did God really say? That's our, it's our heart. It's our heart. And the reason I want to bring this up is because you and I have great and precious promises in the Bible that are given to you to get you through things like cancer. The way you get through cancer is by believing God's word. And if you doubt something like Genesis 7, where God says something awesome and wondrous, how, how are you going to have the faith for that to believe God's word? Right? Or we believe as Christians that the gospel is actually going to conquer, that the gospel is actually going to get to places on the globe that have not heard the name of Jesus, and that there will be churches playing there. How are you going to have the faith for that? Even more so, I think we as Christians just don't want to be thought dumb by people. We fear what people think about us. We don't want to be seen as backwoods, hickish, ignoramuses who believe things in Genesis 7 more than modern science. We want to have a place at the cool kid table. That's our problem. But you see, if you are willing to deny the plainly spoken words of Genesis 7, where do you draw the line? Where do you stop? Where does science match up with the Bible? How about the Exodus? Can that be proven scientifically? How about the day when God made the sun stand still? Do you believe that? Right. How about resurrection from the dead? Right. 
You believe that? Where do you draw the line? On what authority? By what standard? Science proved that God became man. It's all or nothing. I'm not saying that you'll immediately believe it all just like that. I know you have to do research and thinking and understanding of the text. I get it. But we as Christians should be bent towards believing what the Bible plainly says, not against it. When we come and confess faith in Jesus Christ, we're confessing faith in the one who has written scriptures by his spirit. Now, the kind of faith I'm talking about here isn't ignorant faith. There are answers for your questions. But we need to have faith for God's word. And let me close like this. Those historically who mess with things like Genesis 7 end up denying the gospel. Okay? Those who deny certain parts of the Bible as unscientific or just unbelievable end up denying that God became flesh and rose from the dead after dying in our place for our sins. And that is what Genesis 7 is about. Genesis 7 is about God's provision of salvation from his judgment. God provided an ark with which to save his beloved people from his judgment against sin. We learn in Genesis 7 the steep price of sin, how awful sin is, how much God hates it. And we see in Genesis 7 God's love for his people in saving them. Now, God saves his people through his judgment by his means. And he did it through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Genesis 7 is about. Now, think about Noah again and his family. As they're on the ark, as they're hearing the screams and terrors of those punishing the flood, do you think that they thought to themselves, man, I'm glad we're not like them. I'm glad we're better than them. I'm glad we deserved this and they didn't. Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. Do you think that's what they were thinking? What were they thinking? Why us? I don't deserve this. Why me? That is a right response of the gospel, isn't it? Why us? Why does the blood of Jesus cover our sins? Why has God placed us on the ark of his son? Why do I have forgiveness of all of my sins? Why do I have an actual righteousness that counts me as totally right with God? Why will I be included with God's people from all eternity in his heaven? Why? What's our answer? It's Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone that we're saved. It's by his mercy. It's by his kindness. It's by his grace. 
It's not our giftedness. It's not our intelligence. It's not our works. It's not our intelligence. It's not our wealth. It's His grace. So don't mess with Genesis 7 because you're messing with the grace of God. Let's pray. God, would you give us the faith to believe your word as it's written? To believe every word of it because it's precious and right and true. To see in it your glory, your power, uh, your righteousness and justice. To see in it how awful sin is and the price deserving of it. And to see in it your incredible undeserved mercy to any. To see in it your son our Savior, your salvation. So God, may we be willing and have the faith to be thought simpletons and ignoramuses to believe things like what are found in Genesis 7. And we believe them with all of our heart because you're our God and you've written it for us. And God, even more so, help us to believe that our salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone. And so please help us, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Ask God for grace to see how great a salvation he has provided for you and his son. We deserve what we see in Genesis 7. And he has not treated us as our sins deserve. He has forgiven us. He's counted as righteous. He has welcomed us into his eternal family. And so may God give us the faith to see how great this salvation is. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing this gospel so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope in the coming week. Amen. God bless you. I love you.